All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. Uh, my name is Brian. Uh, Mike, unfortunately, is not joining us today. He uh, had some previous engagements uh, come up in the in the works that unfortunately couldn't be here uh, today. But uh, in his replacement for this episode, we have a special guest. Um, with a special guest, I'd like to introduce himself today. Uh, sure, yeah. Uh, my name is Cameron Bile. I'm a writer and director uh, based out of LA. Perfect. And I am a creator of uh, the director series. Yes, yes. Um, uh, we, I think we touched base about what last week. Uh, I just reached out to you on a whim, just seeing, hey, maybe I'll take a shot in the dark. Uh, I've been a fan of yours for quite some time. I'd probably say uh, 2015 when I was introduced uh, to your work through the director series. And um, I don't know why it took me this long to reach out till now, but oh, wow. yeah, yeah. I think I started uh, with, I want to say Paul Thomas Anderson. I want, I, I think it was like the tail end of Kubrick. It's a Paul Thomas Anderson. That's when I first became aware of the director series as a platform. Um, and I've been an avid fan since um, as we've been discussing a little briefly in the uh our correspondences but i think what i what i would really like to do for this episode and what we've been trying to do in our previous episodes is just create the dialogue between filmmakers in the industry and i guess just just bring another another perspective into film that you know mike and i can't necessarily bring whether it's through the industry practice or just everybody's different has their own appreciation so thank you for coming on today of course thanks for having me yeah so i think uh what we're gonna start with is just basic introductions um so i guess if you could just tell me uh cameron what would you like our viewers to know about you as a filmmaker a cinephile just a person um who, what would you like us to know uh, I guess starting off. <laughs> well, that's a good question because, uh, you know, in many ways, I'm still trying to figure that out myself. You know, I always feel like the the artistic journey is one of uh, constant reinvention and learning about yourself. So it's always tough to kind of define yourself and, or you know, when people say you need to know what your brand is as a filmmaker or as an artist. Um, I've always kind of found that a little hard to quantify. You know, maybe maybe I can just uh, give you the facts and you can kind of paint your own picture with that. I was uh, born in Portland, Oregon, lived there for the majority or for the entirety of my uh, pre-college adult life. My, uh, my dad was an architect and uh, my mom stayed home with the kids, but uh, she was always really active in, you know, our extracurricular activities. Um, she, you know, when I was little, I wanted to, uh, I thought I wanted to be an actor. So she was really aggressive about getting me out and, you know, doing local theater, whether that was in school plays or in, you know, even some like professional regional theaters. So it wasn't until though, like about 11 or so that I, uh, I sh shot a little movie with some neighborhood friends and found out that I actually liked being behind the camera more than being in front. And that kind of was the catalyst for everything that has uh, transpired since so anyway so trained in uh, film production at emerson college out in boston moved to la shortly after and uh so as a as a filmmaker um professionally i have produced and uh, released two independent features and a handful of shorts some music videos and i've recently extended into um like commissioned corporate content and last year i 
founded uh, a company called Film Frontier, which is, I call it a micro studio. It's kind of like a, um, it's a full service uh, production company geared towards, you know, providing a, uh, an ability to service clients, but also as well as providing a platform for myself and other like-minded filmmakers and other artists to realize the work that we've been, you know, developing, but isn't necessarily going to find a home in the studio ecosystem or even, you know, the, the, the indie ecosystem as we understand it, like the sun dances of the world and things like that, you know, just kind of trying to figure out what the, um, a, a more sustainable model of filmmaking, you know, something that's a little bit more, not as held back by the standards that have been kind of developed, but also calcified over a century by the studio system. And, you know, there's no one way to make a film. And so we're trying, and no one way to release a film now either. So uh, we're trying to figure out new ways that will kind of help us and help the art form thrive in the 21st century, essentially. And that's kind of the mission statement of Film Frontier. And I'm really uh, excited to be the the voice behind it and then i hope soon to incorporate more like-minded artists and and make it really grow into something yeah that sounds incredibly special and that's definitely something on our our list uh to discuss because that is an incredibly uh i guess in- inspiring message like, even just for aspiring filmmakers that we will definitely touch on uh later in the episode so that's a, that's a great intro uh to our listeners so i think going off of that it sounds like as a root, your roots as a filmmaker, as a cinephile, it's always been something that I feel like a, a lot of our listeners and fellow moviegoers who are, who are, have a passion for it as much as, you know, me or my brother or any, anybody else off the street. Um, it's always been a firm dedication since we were little. We're all kids that there's something, mm-hmm. uh, I guess, transcendental about film that we can't possibly quantify, but yet we all, all of us who appreciate it understand. Um, and that's kind of what I'm getting at when, when you're talking about your exploits and your endeavors and everything. I, I just sit here smiling just saying, yeah, I get that. And um, I think that's something I really appreciate. So I guess going back, you would tie this into childhood, the initial spark of film or just acting or I guess theater, everything like that. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's always been kind of intrinsically tied to my life, even from some of my earliest, like one of my earliest memories is watching the end credits of E.T. and just bawling my eyes out. And I couldn't have been more than two or three years old. And my mom couldn't understand why I was, why I was crying. And I was like, it's just so sad. (laughs) Even at an early age, I kind of, I think I inherently understood the kind of emotional power that cinema can convey. And more so than so many other art forms. Um, it, it really kind of is the the ultimate empathy machine in that regards where, you know, you can truly see the world as in the way that someone else sees it. You know, you can, you can literally live inside someone else's mindset for two hours at a time or more. Um, and I think that's incredibly powerful. You know, I think, I think the theater angle is more so a product of, you know, Portland now is, is you know, kind of held up as this hipster mecca where people go and they live a slacker life and drink 
craft coffee and craft beer <laughs> yeah. all day. And yep. that's certainly true. And there's, and there's certain aspects of that I, I love because that, it's just in my DNA. But at the same time, before even all that, Portland was just, you, you know, how you see it in old Gus Van Sant movies. That was kind of like a, a seedy, soggy, blue collar manufacturing, kind of everything lights completely all off downtown after 5 p.m. Like it was it was not a place you would necessarily consider unless you were actually actively part of that kind of creative underclass. It hadn't really come to the forefront yet, at least in, at least in my perception of it. And of course, you know, when you're 15 or 16 years old, you don't really have a clear sense of that, you know? Um, yeah. All this is to say is that there, the, the, the thriving indie film scene that Portland can kind of boast about now did not exist when I was growing up. And so the closest thing was theater. And even, even when I was growing up, you didn't have the ability to bust out your phone and shoot video that rivals, you know, a red camera. Yeah. Um, you know, you had a VHS camcorder at best. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so theater was kind of the closest amalgamation. And then all those advancements really happened when I was already, li you know, living in Boston and LA and, and all that stuff. So, right. Okay. Were there any, were there any moments during your formative years? I know you just mentioned the ET when you were two, but I guess when you were a teenager, when you could actually understand that a, a light bulb went off in your head saying this, from this moment forward, uh, film means film to me, or was it always just an appreciation since you were a kid that it always meant that to you? Uh, well, I mean, I, 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 inherently understood that movies were a special thing. Uh, but at the same time, my film diet was whatever was at the theater. And that was, it was also restricted by, you know, age ratings too, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so, the, you know, there were certain movies I just couldn't see or, or, and all that. But as far as kind of a, a, a lightning bolt or a, a, a light bulb moment, you know, I, I think it was, less of a moment and just more kind of like an extended flurry of activity um, where it kind of clicked for me. You know, I mentioned before how uh, me and a couple of neighborhood friends got together and just like, yeah. Oh, we have my dad's film or uh, video camera. Let's, let's make a movie today. It's we're, we're yeah. bored. It's the summer. We have nothing else to do. Let's, let's have some fun. And we had so much fun that we spent, every day for the rest of that summer doing the exact same thing, mm -hmm. um, you know, quickly realized that this is something uh, that I wanted to do. And when I realized that it was something that people could actually do for a living, that's, that's really kind of when it all clicked. Nice. And, okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Hey, yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. As I'm, as you're mm -hmm. giving that answer, I also am thinking back to times when we made me and my brother made awful, like, you know, on the on the VHS uh, tapes in the early 2000s of like, whatever it is, ah, a zombie movie or a, a uh, you know, some sort of other yeah. cliche, uh, other trope that we just saw the other day. Maybe we just had seen Dawn of the Dead at eight. I don't know. We'll see. But, <laughs> you know, whatever just came to our heads. So that's, yeah. that's great. Yeah, yeah no, for sure. Yeah. So I think also the, the the other trend that we like to say on the show is your top five films so if you could and and the inner the list can be interchangeable but i guess as of this moment on in may of 2020 what would be your uh top five films oof 
Well, see, that's that that in and of itself is, is a loaded question because oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I feel like it changes all the time. Exactly. Um, you know, I think, I mean, there's a couple movies that have definitely uh, settled in comfortably all the time and then they're, they're at, at any point. But if I had to go with films, if, if I really had to say like a top five, I would have to filter it a little bit more by also kind of quantifying the films that were the most influential to me. Because um, I think out of any other factor you could consider these under, I feel like uh, influence is going to be something that will cause it to stand the test of time. So um, with that in mind, I would say that um, top five would probably be uh, Michael Mann's Heat, Terrence Malick's The New World, uh, Sofia Coppola's Lost in Translation, uh, Mike Nichols's The Graduate, and then uh, P.T. Anderson's Boogie Nights. Awesome. Awesome. All solid films. That's great. <laughs> um, and P.T. Anderson, I'm glad he made the list as well. He's, he's one of my favorites. So um, Yeah, mine too. Yes. Um, so I guess uh, we can use that as a uh, segue into the director series. Uh, P.T. Anderson was the first guy that I kind of delved into your, uh, I guess, film analysis, essays, explorations via the director series. And so I guess what I guess I wanted to talk about is more of the, you know, broad perspective of it and get a little more specific. So I guess broad perspective and I guess the inception of the director series, what motivated you to do something like uh, create a project like this, the ongoing uh, film analysis, your process a little bit, and also any difficulties in that you've come across, you know, within, I guess, how long have you been doing this for about five, six years? Uh, you know, it's maybe even the better part of a decade by now, uh, okay. if you would really consider the full scope and totality of it. Um, right. It first kind of started with an idea I had to watch all of Martin Scorsese's films in chronological order, be partly because there was a lot of blind spots I had in his filmography at the time. And it's like, oh, well, I'll just, I'll watch them all in order. That'll, that makes some sense. It gives me some structure on how to watch them. And when I did that, I could, you know, I became very aware of the fact that I was soaking in certain lessons he had learned along the way. You know, you can see how the triumph or uh, disappointment of a certain film leads to certain creative choices in the next one. I had such a blast doing it. It's like, oh, well, I'm going to do this for a lot of directors now. And I'll just, um, and then, uh, you know, it was a very casual thing. I wasn't doing it anything in the way of like taking notes or anything like that um, or organizing my thoughts. But then as I started kind of doing it a little bit more, I realized, you know, I should really be writing some of this down. I don't want to necessarily be losing track of these insights I'm, I'm receiving. And then that became a, uh, a little blog and then from there that grew into that the essays just kept getting i mean they were little like paragraphs at first and then they just kept snowballing into larger and larger essays and articles and things like that as i you know tried to i did more research into each work and and tried to create a, a snapshot of who this director was at this given point in time and what someone like myself could stand to draw from that and then around the second or third year of doing that, I kind of got bored with the format. And it felt strange to be writing about film when you could show it. Mm -hmm. 
and I had seen, uh, you know, so, some, I seen like an essay by, uh, you know, every frame of painting. And it was also kind of when that creator was just kind of starting up and get, rising to prominence too. But I, I wouldn't say that it was necessarily directly inspired by it, but I, I would say that it was probably around a similar wavelength that led to the creation of both. And so, I, I mean, I was in a, a situation where I had a job with a lot of downtime. And so I had the time to be, oh yeah, I'll just fill my days just throwing these together. And I didn't really ever expect them to find an audience, but um, it seems they have. <laughs> so oh, yeah, I've uh, kind of been riding that wave and, and, you know, trying to parlay that into, you know, an audience for my original work as well. And, you know, it's, it's kind of, I like to see it as my way of giving something back to the art form that gave so much to me. I mean, it essentially gave me my, my life, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Everything that I am right now is to, pretty much directly attributable to the movies yeah and that, yeah that's that's great and that's awesome and you can re your passion really does show through your writing and especially the the director series and also your 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 feature films and short films as well i mean even when i was just watching the director series that that was the main pull it was just like and even if I didn't realize it yet, I was like, just like the sheer passion and determination to make just one video like this, let alone, I mean, you probably, how many, how many videos do you think, do you know how many videos you've made? You've, you've cataloged at least six or seven directors, just off the top of my head. Uh, I'm sorry, you, you cut out a little bit right there. What was oh, that? Uh, no, so I think just, I'm saying uh, the determination, the, the passion of it, that's what struck me. And, it, and it's a lot of work, even just a, let alone the the essay writing, or not the essay, but the the film, the written film analysis, but also the the video analysis that you put out. And I was saying, even to make some of these videos, to me, it seems very challenging. And you've 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 uh, I guess created videos for at least seven or six directors at this point. Some, uh, yeah, I think I'm on number seven right now. Yeah, yeah, you're on you're on Sophie Coppola, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think, uh, I guess for my curiosity, um, since this is more of what film is given to you and you're giving it back, so uh, when you go into these directors, in, in who you choose and when to choose, is it, uh, is it more from a personal perspective? Uh, like for you, Cameron, personally, you know, Stanley Kubrick, David Fincher, P.T. Anderson, everyone that you've done video uh, essays on, is it more of a personal that these are who have formed me or is it for cinema in general or is it a little bit of both? It's definitely a little bit of both. With any selection I make, it's, it's uh, trying to thread that balance between uh, a director that I am really uh, enthusiastic about and can find a lot to write about, but also being, some, uh, being a director that is notable enough to you know, it's it, you could say it's maybe a, a cynical marketing move, but someone who will attract the eyeballs, so to speak. Right. You know, someone's like, ooh, I, I love the, you know. So, like, for instance, the first five that you mentioned, you know, the first five of the cycle up, Kubrick, uh, Fincher, PTA, the Coen brothers, and Christopher Nolan, I chose them for those first five specifically because of the fact that they had large followings. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I wanted to have a, a pretty established base for then delving into 
um, people that were maybe a little lesser known or a little bit more controversial, right. uh, less liked, um, but people who I personally really respond to, like Terrence Malick and Sofia Coppola. Yeah. Um, you know, I hope to one day to be able to bring even more light to um, even more quote unquote obscure directors to kind of, if I have any sort of influence or, or um, influential power with the audience I have, I would hope to be able to use that for good and expose these, uh, like, you know, these lesser seen filmmakers to a, a wider audience. Yeah. Out of my curiosity, uh, what, what kind of filmmakers, uh, like name any, any filmmakers in particular that you would like to highlight? Yeah. Yeah. The first one that comes to mind is uh, Kelly Reichardt. Okay. Are you familiar with her? I'm not. Oh, uh, highly recommend her. She's, she's fantastic. I have, I have um, a really strong affinity for her because, um, I mean, not only is she just an excellent director, but also because um, a lot of her work is about Oregon and the, the, the cultural engines that, that drive that part of the world. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's, it's, I see a lot of truth in it and I see a lot of, um, you know, it's, it's nice to be able to go home essentially whenever, yeah. whenever I pop in one of her films. And at the same time, you know, her, her aesthetic is so, um, it's very observational and very, it's not passive, but it's, um, it's, it's quiet and lets you kind of really active. It, it forces you to actively engage with it. And it doesn't try to beat you over the head with, with platitudes or um, really like really the really clear plot points it's it's more so about an observed reality and sensitivity to the natural world too which i really like and um you know john cassavetes is another yeah. one who is yeah. another huge influence on my on my personal approach to filmmaking you know i think it'd be really fascinating to um to do something on some of the uh, mumblecore directors from the mumblecore movement like andrew bajowski or aaron katz Joe Swanberg, you know, those kind of guys who are now, you're really kind of starting to see big things from them, but they've been in the trenches doing um, micro-budget stuff in their apartments since, you know, the early 2000s. And they, you know, they kind of, for a, for a very brief moment, they were at the forefront of a really exciting movement in American independent cinema. Oh, okay. That's, that's, that's excellent. That, that sounds very great. And now I'm glad I got a one more uh one more director to check out as well so that's that's excellent so i think real quick before we switch gears uh what i guess are there any difficulties in running the format uh running your analysis or just kind of hurdles you you feel that you need to jump through whether it's through you know the written stuff or the video stuff anything with through director series that you know are challenges yeah i think the biggest challenge is keeping the energy of it that's for sure um you know i i Think it's probably no secret that a lot of time and energy and research goes into making any of these it's it's a little bit even more um challenging now uh because uh, i became a father last year and um so we're still very much um dealing with you know a little girl that's growing up right now and um that's even on top of the whole pandemic that we're dealing with it's uh it's thrown a very up a very considerable challenge to my old workflow 
Um, so, you know, I'll have a couple of hours maybe to edit at night or something like that currently. But, you know, I think it's, it's, I think the biggest challenge I think is, um, just, yeah, just maintaining the, the energy to do it because I, I try to change up the format every once in a while as a way to kind of re-energize myself with it. Right. Um, you know, I, I always said that once it doesn't make any sense to do it anymore, that I would stop. I, you know, I love doing it and I don't anticipate stopping anytime soon, but you know, it also has to, I have to strike a really good balance with between doing that and also, you know, getting my original stuff off the ground and getting that out there. And, um, and there's also the fact too, that, you know, it's, it's also very hard even, you know, compete for attention. Yeah. Um, these days, you know, there's so many video essays these days. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, a format that has really exploded and that's a great thing. I'm glad that, um, cinematic literacy is really kind of proliferating right now. And, you know, people are interested in learning about it. Um, and I think, you know, maybe the, the things that I like about the format of the director series doesn't necessarily lend itself to what's popular or trendy in the in right. that format. You know, I think a lot of people tend to balk at, at long running times, especially if it's something that they're just pulling up on Vimeo. Yeah. Um, but I would, I just would hope that whoever sticks around really feels like their time has been rewarded. And that's, that's what I try to channel my energies and focus into when I'm doing these things is to make you feel like that time was well spent and that you came away learning something that you didn't know before. Oh, absolutely. And I, as someone, as, as a fan, you are definitely accomplishing that. I mean, you, because oh, that, you. it's funny because this, uh, I got it in 2015, I was a sophomore in college and that was kind of the beginning of my formative years like truly understanding you know film and 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 delving into the uh you know the actual that and this might be it's not i'm not trying to be controversial when i say this but like surface level directors like tarantino he's he makes amazing films mm -hmm. but tarantino is not like a kurosawa or a sergio leone no matter how hard he tries right so oh, for sure that's what i mean to say is that like sur surface level like tarantino is you know i think everybody's beginning or at least from my generation mm -hmm. and then but that was like sophomore year freshman year when i really started kind of digging deep into getting into you know even even challenging people like lars von trier or i mean even bergman is, is a big figure as he is as well and i think using your your platform was a really good uh, i guess the train not the training wheels but for someone who didn't know anything was a very excellent and i guess interesting way to get involved in the film so that's i mean as someone from i'm just saying coming from a fan just saying thank you for that as well so no i, I really do uh sympathize with and, and encourage you know this the film essay format so i think but even with the difficulties mm -hmm. you have had some reward as well uh i think i remember seeing on i guess the director series or your twitter that you have been you've been awarded some accolades for your your endeavors as well well yeah I, I wouldn't necessarily i wouldn't necessarily call them accolades but um you know in in something like this you know there's you know there's not awards or anything for something like this but there um i think where it really counts is getting uh promoted by outlets of note 
Um, yeah. You know, because that, that translates to more eyeballs on your work and building your audience further. And that's, you know, that can be leveraged towards other things, whether like, you know, you're running a Patreon, like, like I am, but, um, but also, you know, just kind of getting your voice out there as well. But yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's, uh, I'm always, it always really makes my day to find that it's been like, whatever the video is, if it's one of the director series that it's been written about somewhere. And, you know, I've always been surprised at where it shows up too. you know, um, I was really excited the day they wrote about it on IndieWire and, um, it got a write-up in, in Vice Creators Project and even Slate. And then uh, Sight and Sound Magazine has every year they have like a series of um, best of lists compiled by the, the, the most prominent or the top practitioners of that sector of the, of the business. I didn't even know it until they, they you know, I was included on it, but um, they, you know, they have a, a best of video essay list every year. Uh, and so the fact that um, we've been included on it uh, for the past three years running is like a huge thing for me yeah. just because, you know, it's, it's sight and sound. That's, it's one of the preeminent uh, magazines for film in the world, you know. Um, and uh, so if anything, you know, what keeps me going sometimes is, is like, oh, I hope maybe I can get on the list again next year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but um, it's, it's, it's just more so than anything, it's just really nice to kind of get that validation, especially when the nature of it is working alone <laughs> by yourself in a dark room for hours on an end on something that may seem like you're the only one that's passionate about. And then for it to find um, you know, people such as yourself, you know, across the country or even across the world is, is really the, the, that's the real reward, you know? Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. And I agree. Even just talking is, it's also the reward as well. So, um, I guess we can use that as the, as another transition into, um, film frontier. So, Sure. Uh, I know you were saying, um, I guess like the mission was like, the, it's the micro studio, full service production company, um, expanding the platform for the indie scene, the indie circuit in particular. What is it now? Is it more for LA West Coast based or is it more, I guess, like not transnational, but I guess, does it extend outside of the West Coast or is it mainly Philly or not Philly? I'm in Philly, but West Coast based. Well, I mean, that's the that's the beauty of the current era that we live in is um, it does not have to be limited by geography. You know, we as as artists, we've never had an, a resource, a connective resource like the Internet in the history of humankind. And um, and I can't tell you how many other like minded filmmakers I've met just as a um, through the course of not just the director series, but my own work and just promoting it and, and then meeting other people. And sometimes even are lucky enough to physically collaborate with them on a project. Um, so with Film Frontier, you know, begins essentially with a manifesto or a mission statement that we posted. You know, I won't, you can, you can find it for yeah. yourself on our Instagram, but um, essentially it's the, the general sentiment is we, we recognize that the way that movies have been made for the past hundred years it works. There's a reason why certain practices have have evolved the way they have. Um, but at the same time, 
a lot of it is rooted in 20th century mentalities and and model, business models essentially and a lot of that doesn't really apply in um in this new world that we're all building and not even out in that's not even in the context of of the pandemic but just you know what what we want this this century to be you know in our in our most ambitious hopes and dreams we you know we at film frontier we believe that that's not the only way to make a film especially now there's there's other ways and uh just as there's many ways to produce a film there's just as many ways to distribute a film you're not necessarily limited to the theatrical model although that's a great way it's a really efficient way to get a lot of eyeballs concentrated on for an extended period of time uh you know our our mission is to find and foster and promote voices that are looking to innovate with the art form you know um and that could be any number of ways whether that's you know blending of the genre or finding new formats of storytelling like you know one thing that we've been toying with is the the idea of uh, a 60 minute feature film you know where mm-hmm. it's it's half it's half the length of a normal film but uh it's more attuned to the attention spans and the way not not so much the attention spans but the way that we consume media right now in the streaming age where I think you you take a look at I think a really good example is uh the reception of uh the Irishman last year. Mm-hmm. You know, that was a three and a half, three and three quarter hour film. And so many people were like, you uh, get out of here, I'm not watching that, you know. Um yeah. but at the same time, those same people will have no problem sitting sitting on their couch for that exact same period of time watching binge watching episodes of a television show on Netflix. There's there's something to be said and and at the same time, you know, I saw someone come out with a a watching guide for the Irishman where they broke up the film into episodes. They're like, oh. "Okay, now stop the film when you get to this point and oh, then okay. come back to it later." Oh, okay. Which I think which as a practice I don't necessarily agree with because that, you know, I also really believe in director's intent when yeah. you're watching a film. And I I I try to watch a film in its entirety when i sit down but i mean these days it's it's impossible oh, <laughs> it's yeah. it's i i'm lucky if i get 5 minutes at a time to watch a movie <laughs> these days um you you get a pass though it's but, okay uh yeah <laughs> it's temporary yeah um so i think that if you can find a a rhythm of storytelling that is a little bit better attuned to the way that people consume media now then you might have a model for something that really creates something new you know there's um there's so many screenwriting books on the the right structure of a film and you know they've got it all mapped out and you know but but though they're all for that 2 hour model what how does storytelling change when you have half the time to tell it in or um you know but at the same time you can take a lot more creative risks you know budgets are uh essentially cut in half if you if you're operating at a higher budget level if it's micro budget you're so i mean i think it's just uh you know we're right now our a lot of our focus is kind of on building our portfolio of corporate work and commission stuff as a way to kind of build up a a treasure chest if you will for yeah. um you know the idea is the idea is to to f- you know fully finance these like th- this is a platform of self empowerment essentially it's you know for the people who are always you know who have a lot of ideas but they are for whatever reason uh their talent 
isn't syncing up with the trends of the time or um, they're not conforming to what people consider to be profitable or you know, people in positions of power that they'd be uh, pitching to. Our aim is to eventually be a platform where a lot of that doesn't apply. If, if the vision is great and you know how to tell your story, you know, we want to like the idea is to find a way to do it sustainably. You know, even if that is something where you've got $5,000 to make this thing, but you're not going to get a single note from us. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, and I think that's kind of, kind of part of a, of a larger five-year plan where it kind of is able to extend outward into other filmmakers. You know, for right now, I've really been focusing on getting a couple of uh, my own feature-length projects out there, um, but accomplished at these scales. There are, um, God, my, my one business class keeps coming back to haunt me <laughs> <laughs> whenever I talk about this. But it's, it's, it's essentially, you're, you know, you're creating multiple buckets of revenue that can then be consolidated and put you to use for, um, right. for other projects. And if you're able to successfully compound these buckets across, you know, multiple releases and multiple projects and really get a, a, a flow going, then you can, you know, up budgets to the next level of, you know, if you, maybe not 5,000, but maybe... 50,000 or 100,000, you know, I, I don't think that we would ever want to, you know, in, in our wildest dreams, I don't think that Film Frontier would ever want to go beyond a million dollars yeah. for a budget, um, just because then you're starting to get into that tricky territory where you become beholden to so, mo so many more things, uh, not the least of which is, is profit. And, um, you know, and it's, it's very important to any company to survive uh you know we're not trying to completely drive ourselves out of business yeah. but you know i think i think it's if anything it's more of a reaction to what the studios are doing now where they are you know you hear about those the horror stories about shady hollywood accounting and um yeah a film that made 400 million dollars at the box office is not turning a profit apparently and it's because of all these other things and it's making sure that the artists get screwed over so you know um the executives can get a nice fat christmas bonus um i mean that's that's a extreme scenario but um you know i think i think that in order to be a sustainable operation you have to um you have to apply a, a trickle up theory of economics you know it have yeah. to put you have to empower your people to um, do their best. And by doing that, you will achieve that kind of profitability that you otherwise were trying to seek by slashing things that didn't, you know. I think the distribution side of things too is also rife or, or ripe for experimentation and um, right. seeing yeah. what can be achieved outside of that traditional theatrical slash streaming model, you know. Um, right. Maybe the best bet for a film is to uh, rent out a, a motorhome and install a projector in there and then take it across different cities yeah. and show it to like groups of 10 people at a time. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. cinema is so much more now than, and I think that um, what the streaming age has really shown us is that, that cinema is so much more now than a bunch of people sitting in the dark yeah. watching a movie screen. Um, that's the that's the 
ideal. I mean, we, yeah. we all get into it because nothing matches the thrill of watching your stuff with a live audience. But ultimately, I think we also need to recalibrate our idea and our, our, our paradigm of what cinema is, you know, is, is it something that's more about the experience uh, from a communal standpoint, or is it something more, uh, more about the craft that's driving it and the window that's being um, given to us of another person's perspective? Yeah. And, and I definitely agree with you that we are, we are finding ourselves in a, increasingly shifting evolution of film and that in guys like Tarantino and Nolan and even PTA to an extent will say, you know, the film experience doesn't go away. You know, it's supposed to stay within the movie theater, which to an extent I do agree. But at the same time, those, I guess they're romanticizing film so much to a degree that they are refusing to let it grow, um, which is where, I'm, I think we are, you know, building bridges in that right. respect, um, that we are in a new evolution, whether you like it or yeah. not. You know, you see David Lynch saying, oh, you can't watch a film on a phone. Yeah, that's not ideal. But because I was able to watch it on a phone, I was able to watch hundreds of other movies that I would never have been able to watch before. So it is, it is, a, right. we are in a new emerging time as well. And you have to grow with it or else film will die. And you know, you can have your movie theater experience because those are very important. But at the same time, there are other avenues to pursue that are just as lucrative, but also just as expansive. And right, yeah. Um, and I, I think to add to that point too, like I, I, I would maybe consider myself one of those people who sometimes gets that knee-jerk reaction about you know watching a movie on your phone and how it's this, this sacrilege or yeah. great slight to to cinema. Um, at the same time, I also firmly believe that nostalgia is doing us a lot more damage than good. Yeah, maybe you shouldn't watch Lawrence of Arabia on your phone, but maybe there's a a story that is best served um, in that kind of, you know, take for instance, uh, did you ever see that movie Searching? Uh, yes, yes. Came out like, yeah, it was last year or the year before and it was all took place on a computer screen. That that is a film that immediately comes to mind as something that works just as well in the theater as it does, you know, like it's it's it, the, the 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 nature of the story is uh, integral to the the architecture of your phone, you know, like um, it's just the interface that you're interacting with. So it, it totally makes sense that you could build something into that experience of watching it on a smaller screen, and that's a perfect example of, of something that we would be try, trying to do at Film Frontier. I mean, that's that's the reason it's called Film Frontier. It's trying to uh, um, find new horizons for storytelling um, in, the, in the cinematic form, but it doesn't necessarily have to be cinema in, in the traditional sense. Yeah, um, and that actually, uh, <laughs> I was thinking about this question now, is it, is it, is it, it's not exactly limited, but it, do you, I guess when you, is it limited in a sense to the format in that, you know, if, if somebody wasn't, didn't have the eye to shoot something, but they had the voice to say it and that they, they can write, you know, one hell of a screenplay. Is that some, mm -hmm. or, or, or in the, on the adverse, somebody has the eye, but they can't write. Uh, is there, is that, is there an overlap with, you know, Film Frontier in that regard, if somebody has, 
or even not even a knack, but just an interest in writing and not shooting or shooting and not writing? Is there, is there a crossover in that regard? Yeah, I don't know. That's, that's a good question. I, I think ultimately story is, um, story is king. I, people like to say content is king, but, um, but it, it's really story, you know, um, yeah. and whether that storyteller is someone who is better suited to writing or better suited to adapting someone else's words. Um, I think that that has to be judged on the merits of a per, you know, per case basis. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it, just I think it depends. depends. Yeah, um, case by case. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. That, that's a completely yeah. fair answer. <laughs> no, um, no size, no one size fits all. Yeah, exactly. And that's the beauty of film because it's, as you were saying before, it's this amalgamation of, you know, music, words, vision, everything. So that, right. that's the beauty of it, everybody. And, it, and it's, it, it truly is a collaborative effort anyway. So, you know, everybody yeah. has the directors, the names in the front, but, you know, not everybody can do everything. As Terry Gilliam would say right. is you, you hire people to help create your vision. So, um, okay. Right, exactly. Yeah. So I think also with uh, the, so going off the film frontier, you were mentioning, you know, we keep, we keep talking about, you know, the elephant in the room of this, this post-pandemic coronavirus world. Um, I guess from your perspective, how do you see indie production, indie filmmaking being impacted by something where we have to maintain social distancing, where we can't connect in a room together or, or because, or at the, at the sake of getting sick, this, this mystery disease? How do you how do you feel the industry, the indie filmmaking industry getting impacted by that? Right. You know, that's a really good question because um, I really don't know. I, I certainly have uh, optimism about how we can rebuild from everything. Um, and there are some days where it just feels like how is, you know, especially when I'm trying to write. A lot of the times I was, I was texting with a friend about uh, this who, who just asked me, like, hey, when, you know, like, do you ever get the idea, like, or does this total lack of, of motivation when you're writing now? Um, and I said, well, yes and no. The writing is what's helping me get through this. Yeah, but same, also, same on my end. <laughs> there are so many points where you're, you just are struck by this on inescapable thought that, like, you know, is this even, we're going to emerge into an entirely different world when this is all said and done is what I'm writing right now going to even apply? Is this going to be relevant? Um, am I just wasting my time? I think to a, to a certain degree, people are going to be hungry for normalcy um, when we come out of this. And that's where, um, you know, that's where our job as storytellers is really going to come into, you know, focus. It's, yeah. um, you can already see it now in, in the sense that, you know, we have turned to, to streaming exclusively to keep ourselves occupied, um, partly as an escapism thing, but also as a way to just keep ourselves connected to each other. You know, if we can't necessarily have a video chat with our friends, we can at least watch our friends on yeah. at the movies, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's, that's its own kind of comfort. So I think for a while you're going to see this need for comfort as as we rebuild and then once things are a little bit born back to normal, you'll probably see uh, a return to um, attempts at innovating and, and telling bold stories. And we're not, we're not to say that people aren't telling bold stories now, but um, people start to kind of really stretch their legs. Um, 
As for the actual production side, you know, um, I've been reading so much about this uh, because it seems like every other day there's a think piece about how, what filmmaking is going to look like on the other side. And um, I think if anything, it's actually, it's only just going to expedite certain trends that I feel like were already kind of happening. You know, you, you already have this, um, this huge gap, these two ecosystems between the indie world and the studio world. Uh, not just on the budgetary level, but on exposure level, on a, a production scale level. Um, the, the middle has completely fallen out. There's no middle class, essentially, in that regard. Um, yeah. The, you know, the, the films that, you know, I, when I first moved to LA, I interned at Warner, Inde Inde Warner Independent Pictures, um, which was one of the, the few, like, the focus features and Paramount Fantasy that really was thriving in the 2000s, that whole prestige um quote unquote indie sector where you know they were films that kind of were made to pursue awards but and had kind of independent sensibilities but they had full financial backing of the studios and i but i was there right at the start of the 2008 crash so and i and they closed their door shortly thereafter and i witnessed firsthand like what that means on the on the ground level and, and I saw how that all kind of transpired. Movies are so expensive to make nowadays because it's not just the fact that, you know, if you're making a large studio film, you have to have a healthy VFX budget. You have to pay your actors millions of dollars. You have to have huge production insurance requirements, things like that. Or, you know, you're dealing with so many other little things that you wouldn't necessarily think of like there has to be a certain number of union people on the crew, or um, you have to uh, pay various fringes to, you know, uh, production companies and teamsters and like all that stuff. And that all exists for a reason. And when it, that system works, it really works well and people are happy to work in it. People can really earn a living that way. And then on the other hand, you've, you've seen kind of those independent films are really starting to almost slide off the scale in a way. Um, it's really hard to compete with any Marvel or DC film because they just suck up so much air at the, yeah. at the theater, you know? That's, mm -hmm. that's all, you know, when a new one comes out, that's all that anyone wants to talk about. You know, it's, they've become this cultural must-see event. So if you don't see them, uh, you are you you you're you're almost kind of meant to feel like you're being ostracized from the community at large, and yeah. um, I think that's very intentional. You know, they have to they have to make them these huge cultural events, or otherwise, the cost of making them, the escalating cost of making them, is not worth it. And with independent films, you know, you have to fight for any sort of decent budget, and the films that you know, we used to be able to make films on a truly micro-budget scale and be able to find some form of audience for them. Um, and, you know, I allude to uh, that Mumblecore movement I mentioned earlier, where, you know, these kids were making movies in their apartments with video cameras that they owned, and they were able to play at South by Southwest or Sundance, and then they built their careers from there. That part of the industry doesn't really exist anymore. It's um, what's going to happen with with film is going to happen with theater. The um, kind of what happened with theater in the 20th century where it had been that dominant entertainment art form. And then 
when cinema came and replaced it, it was kind of, they adapted, they, they found a way to, okay, well, there's Broadway and that is its own cultural event that people will travel from all around the world to come see and they will pay big money to see it. And then you have this splintering of any number of local community theater groups that, you know, and, and, you know, there's a small theater in every American city, it seems. And there's that cluster of regional people that really are passionate about it, and they're able to find not just happiness, but, you know, a living doing that. Um, you know, maybe they're not operating at that kind of scale that someone on Broadway is doing, but at the same time, they're able to lead a very fulfilling artistic life. And I think you'll see that with cinema too, where, you know, as it gets increasingly harder to make, uh, a movie that isn't a superhero film or a the 18th installment of a franchise. Yeah. Um, you you will have clusters of people who are truly in it because you know if they don't have to worry about making money with it because they're 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 operating off of such threadbare budgets to begin with, then you'll have people that are really doing it once again for the love of the craft and for the art form of it. And you will see kind of the vitality of it will be immediately apparent. And I think that even if it doesn't get beyond, you know, your small town, it's, it's still something that you can build a life and build a body of work out of. And, you know, maybe we need to, you know, I, this is maybe ironic coming from a guy who, moved to LA after college, but maybe we do need to stop looking to that model as the way forward to make it in the industry. Maybe it's something where you look inward to what you have available to you and you make the best damn movie with the resources you have at your disposal. But it's, you know, it's a movie that is unmistakably yours and can only be yours because you're the only person like you on the planet. Yeah. Um, And I think, I don't know, I, I think that's exciting. And I think that's a reason why, you know, Film Frontier exists. And that's certainly why I make the films that I do. I mean, would I love to work on larger films? Of course, yeah. But uh, ultimately, at the end of the day, what, what satif- satisfies me is being able to tell a story that I've been dreaming about and being able to have something to show people. And, and even better, if it gets them to you know, uh, feel something from it. You know, that's, that's why we do it. Yeah, exactly. I 100% agree. You, you write the screenplay because what's coming out of your heart and you shoot what's coming out, but you know, same idea. It's all coming from within and that's really the only way to make a movie. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I 100%. As someone who hasn't made a, yeah. movie, a feature length film yet, uh, I at least, I agree with the, uh, with the idea and everything like that. Um, so I think, uh, I guess in this, you know, in a post-corona world, inter- how, how do we rebuild? I mean, do you see a shift more towards, I mean, like the streaming platforms or is it just get more like what you were saying is that it's more of like this insular experience and, you know, kind of just putting our, putting everything out there and seeing what sticks? Well, you know, I think, um, and this also kind of adds a little bit more to my, my last point is that I think that the nature of filmmaking after the virus, the way that 
is it's going to dictate film production on a on a physical level it's going to further push that that gap between the two worlds of film further apart because not everyone will be able to work at that level or afford the kind of budgetary requirements that such um, requirements are going to impose because you know i they're talking about um you know shared crafty and and me or you know individualized meals instead of just like a buffet style thing like that's one thing but you know having to house your entire production in a hotel for two weeks before you even shoot a roll uh, you know a frame of of film or video having you know having to pull back on you know scenes with extras or they're even talking about like no more kissing in films anymore you know all the all those things are going to have very real tangible effects on any production and the ones who are going to be able to weather that are going to be the the studio films and the more uh the more well resourced indie yeah. outfits but i think that on a on a micro budget level there is actually surprisingly going to be uh, a greater degree of opportunity because yeah. by nature these smaller productions are much more flexible and a lot of the things that uh that are required on a film set are required by the people who aren't actively making the film. You know, it's people who are, uh, who have location requirements, you know, or certain uh, union requirements for the various uh, guilds for the, you know, for SAG or for the cinematographer's guild or things like that, or even like, you know, the, the transport guild, which is not what it's called, but, all of those things dictate the way that a production can be run. But if you are not adhering to those to begin with, because if you are, if you only have $5,000 to make a movie, a feature film at that, let's, let's face it, you're not going to be making it with SAG actors, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, you're barely going to have enough to pay for the, the, the camera itself, let alone salaries and things like that. So, you know, I think that the, the social things, the social distancing things, I think will still be a big part of it, but there will be more latitude, I think, for truly independent filmmakers to, um, who are resourceful enough and aren't necessarily beholden to the way that things are done to find new ways to get around some of those restrictions without putting the, I mean, safety is paramount and nobody should be put at risk to make a film. I mean, and that, that, is true even before the coronavirus but if you know you are if you are making something that you don't necessarily need sag actors for because you have a actor friends or you know people at the community theater who want to get into it and you know you feel they're competently convey your vision then that's going to open you up to whole other sorts of things and the more that you yourself as a filmmaker can be educated about the other aspects of filmmaking too. I think that empowers you as well, because if you're able to wear many hats, uh, then you are able to cut costs even more. Um, not everybody can do it. And those people have, you know, their places on the crew for very good reasons. And, you know, if I had something that had the budget, I would have all those people there, but sometimes you know, it's just you and a camera, and if you're lucky, a sound person. And yeah. if you're able to make the best of those circumstances, then you're, I think you'll be able to thrive in this new climate. Yeah. And you'll be able to be more productive, you know. So, yeah. and then, you know, and then there's going to be audiences who, who need stuff, and they'll be more willing to 
take a chance on something that they are maybe familiar with because the beauty of the streaming age is that it's made that barrier to entry a lot lower, you know, and you have a lot more flexibility in how it gets out there. You know, if you want to show it for free, great. People will love watching things for free if you, you know, but if you're able to get it on Amazon prime, you know, um, people take a chance on it because, you know, they're paying a subscription fee to Amazon. They're not necessarily paying a, a rental fee to you. So that, that kind of, that cost is in, invisible. And, uh, and I think if people feel like they're not taking a monetary risk, they're, they're willing to take that emotional risk. And that's, that's the key, mm-hmm. I think, to growing your audience is to give them a reason to, to watch your work and yeah, make them give, keep coming back. Yeah, give the platform and, you know, keep it enticing and, um, and fresh mm-hmm. and innovative and everything like that. Wow. That, yeah, that was a... Right, and I feel like it's funny. Where I feel like we're now in the uh, the dogma twenty twenty, you know, movement. It's in that like you can't have you know five people on set. You can't have any kissing scenes. You can't be mm-hmm. credited as the director. So I feel like Lars von Trier is smiling wherever the hell he is and in his own sick sick way. But <laughs> no, it's all all incredibly interesting, and in and that and that's I guess the times we live in and that we just got to evolve just like the art form and that's, and that's yeah. stay innovative within the art form. And that's what makes it so powerful. Right. Yeah. And you know, uh, everything that we've been discussing essentially is nothing new. You know, people have been doing this since, you know, John Cassavetes was doing this in the sixties, but um, you know, it's what's new is, is the person behind the camera, you know, that, that person has never existed. That worldview has never existed in the world before until now that story is worth telling. So I think uh, I think that that ties up everything on the topics list that I had for the agenda. Um, is there anything, I guess, generally speaking, you would like to discuss about film, or I guess in terms of a preliminary discussion, we uh, kind of covered what what you uh, the hot topics. Yeah, I mean, I I think that um, I think the the most important thing for for aspiring filmmakers now is even more so than just getting out and, and making your movie it's it's, we have to be our own businessmen now because no one else is going to do it for us. And, you know, that, that could be anything as like, if you have old stuff that you're still proud of, I mean, I know that sometimes, you know, you'll look at a movie a couple of years later and you're just like, Oh my, Oh my God, <laughs> why did I do that? But if there's stuff you're still proud of, you know, there's, there's now this opportunity to, to, get it back out there in the world and there's you know there's there's technology now where you can like the digital space has really made a lot of really interesting things possible like for instance right now i um later in this month i'm going to be re-releasing a, a short film i made about five years ago through film frontier um and using that as kind of a another way to kind of beef up our content on our like on our youtube and um our streaming platforms and things like that but uh, you know, it's not just enough to necessarily just to to re-upload it. It's um, you know, you now have this ability to like remaster the film in a different resolution. Like we shot it on you know an HD camera from 2014, but I'm able to upscale it to 4K to kind of fit more of a modern video standard and lose absolutely nothing in the translation. At least as far as my tests can um, can see. I'm still kind of building out, so we'll see whether or not that holds up. But it's, but um, it's really cool that we can uh, that we have these kind of things at our fingertips now, where we can find new ways to tell the stories that we've already told, and 
find ways to make it relevant to people that didn't know about it the first time and give you know it's it's just an opportunity to to give old films a, a new life you know there's a lot of stuff i did in the last 10 years that i'm so really proud of and and i'm excited about getting back out into the world and in, in kind of um in an updated form even while i'm kind of working on my old stuff because at the end of the day it's 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 about communicating who you are as a person and what your vision of the world is the more that you can do that the more power you have to realize your your ambitions as yeah. a storyteller or as a filmmaker or right. really kind of any art form that you choose exactly now is there i think you might have mentioned this before through distribution is there any is film frontier experimenting or or touring with the idea of physical media uh distribution for your films or for other films that you produce or anything like that right i mean i i love physical i mean i don't know if you can see this oh i can see it um it's great <laughs> um you know i i absolutely adore physical media because i mean for all the for all the credit i give the streaming uh platforms they still don't hold a candle to you know, optical formats just on a technical level. And, you know, I've always been someone who, where the, the technical quality of the film should be the absolute highest it can be um, within reason of what your, your budget is and what your scope is. And I think that it depends on the project. I think if there is a reason to do some sort of like boutique limited physical release, um, there's also that capability now from a from a single person perspective. You know, I could burn a I could author and burn a Blu-ray and put it together and ship it out to you and do this 500 times and mm-hmm. um, and have something physical that people can have and it's not beholden to things like you know internet outages or uh, sudden rights issues where you know they have to pull it or the platform just like, you know, when Filmstruck went away a couple of years ago, like yeah. it goes away almost overnight. You know, I, I think you know, it's, it's, if anything, it's more of a, of a marketing thing than an actual film consumption thing, I think. Whereas it used to be that was the only way you could get the film out into the home video market. There are so many ways now that um, if there's a niche of your audience that overlaps with the the community that's buying physical media and that has a an appreciation for that that the, the tactile nature of it the ability to hold it in your hands or put it on your bookshelf to to really feel the physical presence of it then you know there's a way i feel like and a reason to to do it I'm gonna go away anytime soon or at least i hope it won't but yeah i hope not either um, i mean you know you hear about people buying vhs tapes now so and that could be, I mean, that could be a fun thing too, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> putting something out on video cassette. But it really just kind of like at the end of the day, it depends on on the film and what the story and what the the nature of the project dictates. Yeah. Um, there's there's no one wrong way to watch a film. Uh, I, and, um, I completely agree with that. And that, that was the... You have to... You that was the thesis of our discussion. Just there's always, <laughs> there's always a, another way to watch the film. And as we're finding... Uh, it's our job to figure out how and, you know, and, and, and the new ways will keep coming. So I think, uh, I think, uh, is there any, any, any other topics of uh, interest that you would like to cover, uh, I guess, in the few minutes we have left before I have to return to the baby or? 
Uh, let's see. I don't know. I mean, uh, do you feel like all of your questions were answered? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think okay. I, you gave me a lot to think about as well. Uh, you know, I'll I'll be thinking about a lot of the the questions and answers even. I guess at least until we uh, record again for uh, Mobius as well. Um, but yeah, no, I think I think the the questions were very insightful and thoughtful. Gave us a lot to think about as well. I think I think I'm set as far as uh, sounds good. Everything I think yeah I think we covered everything. <laughs> that was a pretty sprawling conversation. Yeah, definitely. I think so. I guess the next step for our listeners is where can they find you? Uh, I guess like Twitter handles, well, uh, Instagrams, anything like that. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, let's see. I mean, I'm, I'm not the most, um, consistent on physical media or not physical, I'm sorry, um, on social media, but, um, but I should be, uh, yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm on Facebook, on Twitter, um, at Cameron Bile on Instagram, same thing. And then, uh, the director series, uh, is on Facebook and Twitter at the director series, I think. <laughs> yeah, and I think all your, um, I think all of your, um, oh, sorry. Honestly, your best bet is as uh, is the is my website karenbile.com that has right. all of my um, all of my original work on it, and then um, has you know access to the director series and um, and all the other little social media streams and yep. Are you could ever want to know about me? Are the essays on there as well, or because I think Director Series has its own website? Where yes. The, yeah. Yeah. Director Series does have its own website, directorseries.net, and that's where all the videos and all the um, the text essays are. I, I think a lot of people also don't realize too that um, it's not just videos; it's it's a whole exactly. swath of of articles. So if you know you're a fan of the videos and you haven't seen a director that you're a really big fan of yet, um, you probably wrote about it. I've I've probably written about them, and you'll get a pretty good sense of what the videos will be because the the videos are sourced directly from the articles. So um, with minor tweaks, but yeah, um, check it out, and uh, I'm sure it'll it'll provide lots of reading time. Oh, definitely, and they're they're very very insightful. And yeah, if you just you just want to kill a couple days in uh, in quarantine, definitely check out director series the the essays, and then you know watch some films while you're at it. Watch some new films. Um, and also I'll put, I'll put the links to, you know, the, the various sites in the description of this podcast. So then we have, you know, they have a URL to click on and direct you that way as well. So I think, uh, I think that, com- awesome. that commences our awesome. uh, conversation momentarily. So Cameron, thank you so much for, uh, you know, taking the time out of your day to just sit and talk about film, you know, the future of it and everything, you know, that goes in between. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate talking to you. Oh yeah, it was great discussion and I couldn't think of anything else I want to do right now. So thanks again. And um, I guess we'll be, uh, we'll, we'll continue the conversation another time for um, a short film you recommended. Sounds great. Okay, perfect. All right. Uh, so thanks guys. Uh, you'll hear Mike in the description. He'll give his voice after this conversation and um, just leave a, a comment anything helps. Uh, Thanks for listening, guys. Stay safe out there.